Hello, Fort Worth, and welcome to another episode of the Fort Worth Freedom Review. If you are new here, the Freedom Review exists to inform and educate the Fort Worth and Tarrant County community about the values and the functions of civic engagement, the goings-on of the local city council, the mayor, and the county commissioner's court, as well as important news stories from our community and from the greater Texas community, including state political issues. My name is Anthony Sosa, and today with me we have Amber O'Dell and Thomas Moore here to discuss the recent panel of police chief candidates for Fort Worth PD, as well as what to look for during the upcoming Texas legislative session. I will do a brief breakdown of how the Texas Congress is set up before going into some of the proposed bills, and Amber will also give us a breakdown of what procedural justice means before getting into the panel. Spoiler alert, we liked Chief Derek Miller the most. All of the resources used for this episode will be provided below in the show notes. As always, please subscribe and sign up for our newsletter and get updates on Fort Worth political news and deep dives into local issues. We are currently a volunteer organization. If you would like to get involved or want to contact us, you can reach us at fwfreedomreview at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at fwreview and on Facebook at Fort Worth Freedom Review. This podcast is made possible by the Justice Reform League, a Fort Worth-based nonprofit. If you wish to support us or this podcast, please go to justicereformleague.org and click the donate button. But anyways, so what what I'm going to start us off with talking about is the Texas legislature, essentially the Texas Congress. So for those who don't know or haven't spent maybe too much time thinking about, Texas has a Senate and a House of Representatives, just like the United States Congress does. However, it's run a little bit differently. And there are, I don't know, kind of different rules about how it goes down, how, how they make, how they choose to pass these laws. And there's also the thing that bothers me the most is they don't meet every year. Um, the Texas Congress meets every other year, every odd numbered year for a 140 day session. Um, I don't know. I'm sure there's maybe a couple of other states that do this, but this is pretty antiquated. Like we're in the 21st century now. We're like a fifth of the way through it already. It's certainly possible for us to to meet every year and get stuff done. And there's actually a bill where they're going to try and enact that this year. I'll get to that here in a minute when I talk about the the proposed bills for this new session. But I just want to want to get people a rundown of how our Congress is constituted or is that the right word? How our Congress is set up, what, what it looks like. So we have the House and the House it has 150 seats in the state of those 150 seats, the way it's currently set up, is 82 Republicans and 67 Democrats. There's actually one vacancy currently in District 68. I haven't done my research as to why. Um, I'm sure that'll get filled at some point soon. Um, and then we have the Senate. And the Texas Senate has 31 senators. And the way that it's currently set up right now is there's 18 Republicans and there's 13 Democrats. Uh, one thing that they, the first thing that they have done this year is that they have are essentially going to try and pass. And I believe that they have, I got this, uh, Texas Tribune article 
titled Texas Senate Changes Rules so Republicans can still bring bills to the floor without Democratic support. So what happened this past election year is they lost a Republican Senate seat. So it went from 19 Republicans to 18 Republicans and from 12 Democrats to 13 Democrats. And so what they're doing or what they have done is change the rules to make it to where they only need 16 votes uh, to, to pass anything. And so Democrats are not going to be able to essentially pre- prevent the Republicans from passing any sort of legislation uh, because they're, they're changing the threshold for that. Um, and that's, so I'm going to read a little bit from this article just to kind of expand on it a little bit. Uh, in an 18 to 13 vote, lawmakers voted to lower the threshold of support that legislation needs to be made on the Senate floor. In past sessions, the Senate required a three-fifths supermajority, or 19 votes, to bring legislation to the floor. But after the defeat of Senate Pete Flores, a uh, Republican from Pleasanton, uh, mm-hmm. they successfully reduced the number of Republicans. Oh, so that he, I'm sorry. He's the Republican who lost his seat from 19 to 18. And lawmakers have now lowered the threshold from 19 to 18 <laughs> members, uh, a move that Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick has been pushing for. So they did that. And so now the Republicans still kind of have the same amount of control that they had last session, even though they lost a seat. So that's one thing that's frustrating. But anyways, uh, kind of moving on, and I'll wrap this up, this, this uh, summary of, of the Congress up, and I'll start getting to some bills here in just a moment. Um, another thing I just wanted to point out and just talk about really quickly is an issue that I'm not sure a lot of people are aware of or maybe have even thought about, the, the pay for people in the Texas Congress. Um, they get paid $7,200 a year plus a per diem which is $221 a day while they're in session. And again, they're only in session every other year. What this amounts for to... For 140 days? For, uh, for the, 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 the... Yeah, 140-day session. That's correct. So with the 221 per diem for 140 days and the $7,200 ends up adding to $38,140 per session year. Um, and then the off year, because they're not in session, they make way less. And so to kind of make it make sense for their two year term, they make $45,340 for that term. And I understand being a Texan, like I, I understand that we kind of have this attitude that like, we don't want our lawmakers to make a bunch of money. Oh, these people go down to Austin and they make laws for us and they're corrupt and blah, blah, blah. We don't need to give them more money for doing that. I understand that attitude and that mentality. I used to have that myself. But what this essentially means is if you can only make $45,000 for two years being a representative or a senator, it means you have to be independently wealthy to do that. And it it cuts Mm -hmm. off people who, like the regular people, like you and me and, and most of the people listening to this podcast, we can't effectively be a decision maker in the state of Texas, in the House or the Senate, unless we're independently wealthy. And so like, for instance, our rep, um, Representative Ramon Romero, I like the dude a lot. Uh, He owns a construction company and like a pool and concrete company or whatever. And so because of that, he is able to take off 140 days a year to go down to Austin to help make these laws. But me as a teacher, I wouldn't be able to take off, you know, five months of one of my years uh, I wouldn't be able to keep that job. 
And a lot of people, you know, maybe who have certain jobs, there's no way you can take off five months uh, and then keep that job. It's just not possible. And so I just kind of want to make people aware. I think this is something that down the road we may need, if we want Texas to be more democratic down the road, uh, we might need to actually pay our lawmakers more. Uh, and I know that it seems counterintuitive uh, if we're like, oh, these lawmakers are corrupt or blah, blah, blah. But they make most of their money in different ways. They don't make it from from going down to Austin and, and, do, and doing yeah. their job. So I just yeah, wanted to just stumble on a... something. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say they already have, you know, like a, a decent amount of wealth, like in the first place um, before they even get into office. And then, yep. you know, also like having to live in Austin for however long, exactly. you know, you have to get a separate apartment from your actual home. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people, you know, like a significant amount of their income goes like just to paying for, you know, housing. So it'll, it might be like, you know, like 30 up to like 40% for some people or even more. Um, so then having to like also rent an apartment for, you know, however long you're in Austin, you know, like exactly. most, and most average people aren't able to pay for that. And that's technically what you the, just, sorry, go ahead, Thomas. Yeah. Oh, I was gonna say, you just stumble on a bigger thing. Um, you know, they did a study of the, the U S Congress as a whole, um, at any given time. And this is with like at a good time, um, only about 4% of Congress is going to be filled with working day people. Mm -hmm. You know, everyone else is, you know, either a millionaire or close to it. And it gets worse because some of the disclosure statements are ambiguous. So even some of the people who say, hey, you know, my net worth is negative 720,000, they're just not declaring certain assets because they don't have to declare properties and stuff. Absolutely. I think that's intentional. I think at first, it, you know, wealth used to be a symbol of education. And they wanted people who could understand things, who could actually read, because not everyone was literate. That would make sense. But over time, it's kind of become a, uh, it's become a barrier to entry. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. And so that's, I just want people to be aware of that. I know a lot of people just don't even pay attention to U.S. politics and what the U.S. Congress is up to. Maybe, maybe more now over the past four years than, than normal. But even less people pay attention to what people are doing in Texas, what our state representatives and our state senators are doing down in Austin. And so I yeah. just kind of want my whole thing over the next, during this legislative session is I'm going to be covering this. I'm going to be trying to talk about the, the bills, the different things that are going to be happening and maybe will become new Texas laws moving forward. And I just want to kind of educate people about that. So, uh, so I'll go ahead and move on to the, what we're looking at this year. Um, there's a few different bills because so they, they, in November, they get to start kind of writing up the bills and kind of proposing, Hey, we want, we want to debate this. We want to present this in the session. So the, the lawmakers have had some time to kind of write these up. And so different, different publications, uh, news organizations and stuff were kind of a, a, aware and abreast of like, Oh, okay. They're, they're going to maybe talk about mm -hmm. this, or they're going to maybe try and pass this here during this session over the next 140 days. Um, one of the biggest ones that is coming up is the George Floyd Act. And so Texas longest serving black woman uh, in the Texas legislature, Representative Sinfronia oh, oh, Thompson, uh, she has a compilation of bills that she's introducing to the legislative session that deals with police reform. And it's called the George Floyd Act. And these, deals, these bills uh, are dealing with excessive police force, chokeholds, uh, Re revising qualified immunity, uh, police identifying themselves, and arrests involving minor offenses 
and officers' disciplinary records. So that's something to kind of keep an eye on. And I'm going to actually go into a little bit more detail about that here in just a minute. This, the first publication I'm looking at is from KSAT down in Houston, and it's titled mm-hmm. Six Bills to Watch in the Texas Legislature in 2021. Um, I'm not going to mention all six of them, but another one that is a big one. And this, this has kind of come up a few different sessions, a few times. It always gets knocked down, but marijuana legal, legalization. And yes. so now there are at least 38 states in the United States and more, I think, now after this past November uh, that have some form of either medicinal or decriminalized or legal marijuana. And so Texas is one of these last few states that have been holding on. So uh, State Senator Roland Gutierrez, a Democrat from San Antonio, is filed SB 140 to allow for the recreational use of adults uh, of marijuana by adults 21 and older. Um, and so that's that's something he's uh, Gutierrez has also previously said that legalization would result in an estimated three point two billion dollars in state revenue and 30,000 high paying jobs. And so I know jobs are a big deal for everybody. Everybody wants more jobs, especially right now during this recession that we really even haven't started to deal with yet. Uh, A lot of people are out of jobs. So if you want to help people get jobs, maybe you could make marijuana legal. That'll be a a bunch of jobs, 30,000 jobs that would become available uh, in the the very near future. And I'm sure more down the road as that becomes successful, like it has in every other state. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point too, because like, um, I know that many states are, um, you know, like the the budget is not where it would normally be, um, yes. you know, because of the pandemic and COVID and a lot of, um, I don't know, like from what I was seeing a few months ago, it was looking like several different states were actually going to be like um, in the red and having to, you know, make like sig- significant cutback to um, different types of, you know, services that, that they would normally be able to provide. Um, and I know Texas is definitely one of those states because um, the state actually has like pulled back like a significant amount of uh, public school funding already mm-hmm. um, yeah. because uh, at least at, at the college level, um, I'm not sure about um, like about, you know, public like public schools for like high school, like K through 12. Um, but I know they're like pulling back money because um, everything is like online and they're like, oh, we need this money back. Um, but if we could make, you know, like marijuana legal and actually create like an entire new, um, an entirely new area or area, you know, for, for making profit for the state, that would be really great, I think. Absolutely. And on that same note, um, there is a bill regarding the legalization of casinos. Uh, hmm. And that's something that I've been talking about since I was a kid. It's like, it's really, really dumb that every state surrounding us has casinos and Texans are, you know, free to go outside of the state to do all the gambling that we want. But here in Texas, we're not spending that money here. That's not helping Texas and Texans. Uh, and so, uh, let's see, who is it? Uh, state representative Joe Deshotel, uh, proposed bill HB 477 to allow casino gambling in parts of Texas. And under his bill, Money generated from gambling would increase uh, windstorm insurance funding. Interesting. Um, But Texas has a long history of opposing gambling efforts, as many people know. Many conservative lobbying groups have stayed steadfast in opposing any effort. And it's a lot of times it's for moral reasons. It's like, oh, it's against, you know, Christianity in some way. The Bible says don't gamble, blah, blah, blah. That was what I heard growing up in Burleson. But also there's a, a pretty big lobbying sect of 
people out of state, the, the New Mexico casinos and the Oklahoma casinos and the Louisiana casinos, they, uh, they don't want us to legalize it here in Texas because that would take money away from them. So they've yep. been lobbying pretty heavily in Texas to keep it illegal. So that's, that's another one to kind of watch closely and see, uh, see how that goes. One thing I learned reading this, I didn't know we have, we actually have three well, casinos here in Texas. Uh, we have casinos that are that are run by uh, Native American tribes in Eagle Pass, in El Paso, mm-hmm. and in Livingston. So I thought that was fun. Uh, there, another thing to kind of look out for is the change to where they make it an annual legislative session. And so that's one that I am super for, as you probably can tell by what yep. I was talking about a minute ago. Uh, HJR 52. Uh, it's a joint resolution uh, from Representative Kyle Larson. Uh, a Republican who would is is pushing to cut it to a seventy day legislative session every year from mid March to May instead of the current one hundred and forty day legislation period in odd number years. So I don't I'm not sure if there's any support. I, that's one of the things I'm not clear by reading these. I don't know where we're at as far as like the likeliness that X Y or Z is going to pass. But uh, we'll we'll find out as the legislative session goes on, and I certainly will try and keep everyone abreast of the likelihood of any of these passing. But based on the how the the House and the Senate is comprised, and the Republicans having a majority in both of them, is unlikely that a lot of these more progressive Democratic bills are likely to pass. But who knows? You know, a lot. This has been a, a stressful year for the state of Texas, just financially and otherwise. And so it, it's it's interesting to kind of see where some of these things are going to go. Um, another one that I thought was interesting is banning police from signing reality television contracts. And so oh. I'm going to read this from the article. Uh, in response to the death of Javier Ambler in uh, Texas District 52, Representative James Tallarico is a Democrat. Uh, he filed HB 54 that would ban state and local law enforcement agencies from entering into reality TV deals. And the bill is named Ambler's Law. And was written with the help of his family, Talrico said. Ambler was killed after he was chased by Williamson County deputies for failing to dim his headlights in March of 2019. And Ambler was stunned multiple times and could be heard begging, save me and I can't breathe, before he was stunned a fourth time and lost consciousness. The pursuit was recorded by live PD, by a live PD camera crew. And the news of Ambler's death resulted in the show's cancellation. And so I remember when that yeah. show got canceled, but I didn't yeah. remember that that was a Texas sheriff office that did that and caused the show to get canceled. Yeah, um, it's been an ongoing problem with these police shows because, um, you know, like law enforcement, is, you know, like an average day for an average, you know, member of law enforcement is relatively uneventful, right? Um, you're just kind of rolling around and, you yeah. know, doing your your beat. And, you know, it's like when you're watching these like, you know, just like not lot, not reality cop shows, but um, you know, like other shows of like SVU or or whatever. You know, it makes it seem like every day is just like, you know, like all action all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's pretty, you know, different from reality. Like obviously, like law enforcement officers like have to deal with like really um crazy yep. calls. But there's a lot of um, you know, members of law enforcement who will go there, you know, brag about going their entire career without ever having to like even draw their weapon. Absolutely. Um and so when you get on these reality shows and you have people filming you, there's an incentive to like, you know, create this um, you know, this 
air of like excitement and sensationalism Drama. and you know um ma like make it seem like there's just like all this action going on um and they feel you know compelled like by you know pe the people recording the shows to like make it seem like this is like a really exciting career or career and um you know like make you know create drama where there wouldn't normally be drama mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and you mm -hmm. hope that there's not drama right um and so i think this is an excellent bill it would be would be really great because you know there's no reason for people to um you know lose their life because like some law enforcement officers have like signed on to some like sleazy reality right. show and are having to um you know escalate where they should be de-escalating just for just for the sake of the of the tv yeah, show the that's TV, crazy exactly of content see here's my thing i would have to see the language of that because like my deal is i don't want it to happen as much but people don't realize how often you know they don't de-escalate and i think that you know if they had this re reality show or whatever it would kind of expose them a little bit but also you know it depending on how it's written, it might hurt people from being able to film the police. And so I'd have to look at that. Well, it, it, um, it, the way it's worded, at least the way I understand it, is specifically entering in contracts with media organizations okay. to follow them around. Um, okay, gotcha. Yeah. And I think, I guess I'll expose my age a little bit, but like growing up, like uh, watching Cops, the TV show yep. Cops, you know, like oh, yeah. um, makes <laughs> You know, I mean, like I like I was a kid when that show was on. And, you know, I mean, it, it really is, you know, like people that are watching the show and like excited about the action and, you know, like they think they're like witnessing justice, you know. Um, it 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 really is a situation where it's giving the public like a, an unrealistic, you know, perspective of like what law enforcement really right like um and has like led to it, i don't know like in my opinion like those shows have just been so completely problematic for the united states um in general so i think that um there's been a, a long track record of of these tv shows um you know being more problematic yeah. than they are helpful i guess and cops was the first reality show is 89 or 90 when it first started airing or something i guess was it really it, the first reality show yeah before real world a lot of people I think real world mtv was the first but cops was on years before real world tv was a real world was on yeah it was like at the wow. peak of like the war on drugs and mm -hmm. you know led to you know i don't know it just it just in my opinion led to the like public criminalization of poverty um in a lot yeah. of ways and i think it's just been really disgusting um yeah so in my okay, opinion. so i'm gonna go ahead and run down the rest of these real quick and then we can get to the police chiefs uh candidates and that sort of thing there's uh one more uh, article that I found from an organization called Progress Texas, and that they have kind of made it their thing to cover uh, the legislative sessions as well. So they've got some pretty good resources to anybody who's interested in, in that stuff as well. They have an article called Bills We're Watching in the 2021 Texas Legislative Session. And what they did, it was published on December 3rd, and they kind of grouped it into three different categories, the good, the bad, and the ugly, which I thought was pretty clever. And so I'm gonna kind of, I'm just gonna follow it along during those categories. And so talking about the good, um, there is a bill, a couple of bills regarding election laws and kind of you know, changing those. And so uh, Rep Representative Cecilia Israel, um, she's introduced HB 350 that would allow Texans to be able to comp complete a voter registration application online through the state official website, which you still cannot do. If anyone who's listening to this isn't registered to vote, you may not know that you have to fill out a physical card and you have to physically mail it and you it is, everything has to be correct 
for you. It's it's there's a bunch of uh, loopholes that you got to jump through to get registered to vote. And so this is just kind of one way that they would make it a little bit easier. You could just do it online, like you register for everything else these days. Um, uh, and again, I'm sure everyone is well aware. Republicans, are, at least especially over the past four years, have not been uh, open to the idea of expanding voter registration or making it easier for people to mm -hmm. become registered to vote. They've been doing the other thing, the flip side of that, making it more difficult for people to vote, participating in voter suppression and that sort of thing. So this is one bill yeah. that, that could, could help deal with that. There's another bill, uh, HB 478, filed by Re Representative Jessica Gonzalez, and she's introducing a bill that would accommodate voters who are unable to enter a polling place by creating a designated parking space where voters who are physically unable to enter the uh, early voting poll place be assisted by a clerk, which I thought was good kind of for, for uh, what's, what's, the, what's the correct term? I want to say disabled, but that's not the correct term. Uh, Amber, help me out with this. Uh, differently abled people? Differently abled, yes. Thank you. Yep. Um, and then, so in regards to racial justice, there is a couple of bills. House Bill 36 and Senate Bill 121 is being introduced by Representative Jarvis Johnson and Senator Nathan Johnson, who, which would abolish Confederate Heroes Day as a state holiday. So is that a is that a state holiday? It's been a state holiday for a long time. I uh, have never heard of this. <laughs> so I mean, it's probably it's one of those things that's just like recognized. I'm sure during the session or during you know Texas political issues or whatever it's like okay we honor this day as this whether or not the local right. schools pick up on it or you know or whatever is a, it's a separate issue but at least as far as the state yep. of texas is concerned it is recognized <laughs> as a state holiday um yeah let's go ahead and and, and abolish that i mean the fact that like most people don't know about it anyways like let's just let's just get yeah, rid of that we don't need that <laughs> no it's, it. <laughs> it's a bad look especially after after what's been happening yes. um uh representative nicole collier has uh introduced HB 302, which would expand the definition of legal sexual assault without consent. And this expanded definition would help give more power to survivors if they choose to pursue pros prosecution. Sounds like a good idea to me. Mm -hmm. um, HB 354 and Senate Bill 188 have been introduced by Representative Harold Dutton and Senator Eddie Lucio, and they, in they seek to end the use of capital punishment in the state of Texas and abolish the death penalty. Excellent. I, I like it. I, I I find it very hard to believe that it would actually pass this session. Yeah, they ain't gonna get like you're gonna have to get a strong Democratic majority. Yeah, to get that. Like honestly, I don't see that happening until we severely fix our voter suppression laws. Because I honestly believe that you know Democrats outnumber Republicans. There were 5.7 million people in Texas mm -hmm. who were registered to vote and didn't vote in 2020 mm -hmm. and yeah. there's probably more that you know are eligible to register but didn't know they could yeah and that five million yeah. five what do you say 5.9 million almost 5.7 5.7 yeah i mean texas has about 36 million people in it so that is a big percentage a big perfor uh, proportion of, of texas voters who yeah didn't participate which is unfortunate to hear uh and this goes back to the, oh. the, the suppression yeah, I, want, yep. I do think that that public perception on capital punishment has uh, has changed, you know, over time. And um, there's a lot of evangelical voters, you know, that are members of the Republican Party who are are against the death penalty, um, you know, because of religious factors. And so I think that there 
um, is definitely a possibility for for gaining more support. And I think that one of the biggest things that you know we can do is like keep having the conversation and yeah. and getting people to really think about it. Yeah. Um. Because there's been so many um at, like what people would call like botched executions. Um. So many people who have been executed in the state of Texas that are actually um you know found innocent after the fact. Mm-hmm. Um. Wrongly I think that like. Five, you know, now that we know that like five percent of like all executions are of people who are actually innocent, um, mm-hmm. Texas has been making um, different. Uh, I guess like we're like in some ways we are kind of like progressive in the area of of wrongful convictions because um, there were some laws that were passed a few years ago that um, were kind of like mandating like conviction integrity and a lot of I think even Tarrant County has a conviction integrity unit. Um, where, you know, there's like teams that are hired, like after the fact to go in and like look into the integrity of like convictions, generally making sure that it wasn't a chance of wrongful conviction, because as we know, our, um, court system is not, it's not foolproof and it doesn't always get it right. Absolutely (laughs) not. Um, in fact, a lot of times it gets it wrong more often than it gets it right. And I want to frame it this Um, way to, to, if we do have any, you know, any libertarians or any conservatives that are listening to this. Uh, I know you guys support small government, don't like government being involved in certain issues. As a libertarian socialist myself, I don't like the government sticking its head where it doesn't belong. Uh, And the state executing people is one of those areas where that is the government doing something that maybe the government necessarily shouldn't be doing, in my personal opinion. So just maybe think about it. The state has the right to take lives of of individuals. Yeah. And so if you're suspicious of the state, maybe maybe think about how you feel about the death penalty. Maybe spend some time marinating on that. Yeah, that's Um, a a huge power to give to the state, in my opinion. Um, Okay, so uh, back to the marijuana thing. There's actually a few different bills that are being introduced. One of them is HB 43, and it's authorizing the issuance, possession, and cultivation of cannabis for medicinal purposes, or medical purposes, as it's worded here. Uh, HB 447 is Representative Joe Moody's bill, by far the most progressive marijuana legislation filed. It legalizes the use, transport, and growing of marijuana for Texans over the age of 21. It also provides a framework for the cannabis businesses in Texas by creating a licensure and distribution uh, procedures. Um, so that's there's a few different bills. There's a third one, but I'm, I'm just going to try and get through these as quickly as possible. So the, they're introducing things on different fronts that are attacking specific, specific you know, areas of, of, uh, of law that they could maybe try and you know, get, get this past or get, get have, have more more availability for marijuana so it's, it's kind of a baby step sort of thing um regarding health care we have hb40 introduced by representative D- james tallarico and it's working toward placing a monthly cap on the price of insulin and insulin Excellent. supplies which would be nice um there's also let's see here there's one about expanding medicaid or medicare i'm trying to see where that one okay here it is uh, it's actually a few different bills. HB 389, HB 398, uh, House Joint Resolution 23 and 24, and Senate Bill 188. All are um, under Representative Cecilia Israel's, Representative John Bucky, Busey? Bucky. I'm going to go with Bucky's. And Senator mm-hmm. Nathan Johnson, the three of them have introduced these bills. And it is the eligibility for Medicaid would expand by providing medical assistance to all persons who apply for the assistance and who are eligible under the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act with certain exceptions. This would be an estimated this would be estimated to expand eligibility for over 2.2 million Texans. And so the Affordable Care Act, you know, Obamacare if you want to call it that, 
something that I'm not particularly excited about or happy with. It doesn't work great. Um, but one thing that is under it is that states are able to, you know, apply to get some some money from the federal government to help expand uh, Medicare in their Medicaid in the in their state. And Texas is not one of the states that has signed up for that or agreed to yeah, that. We, We've not taken we any of that free money. It's free money. It's free money for the state to help people get medical care. And we have not opted for that free money. Uh, yes. And so this bill would essentially kind of opt us in for that, the way I understand it. Um, we are number nine out of the top 10 worst states for health care. Yeah. I believe that. Absolutely. And I know some people might be thinking, it's not free money that's coming out of my paycheck or that's coming out of, yes, it's, 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 everything's coming out of our paycheck. So it was all the billions of dollars we're spending on the military. Um, so we could get, get some of that for us Texans. We deserve that. Um, in regards to reproductive health care, we have House Bill 414 and Senate Bill 121 introduced by Amando Wale uh, would help extend Medicaid eligibility for women after their pregnancy and help women continue to get medical assistance for no less than 24, this is 24, 24 hours, I guess, after their last month of pregnancy. Um, similarly, Senator Nathan Johnson's bill would extend Medicaid eligibility for women after a miscarriage, which the way that it's currently set up if you didn't have the baby, you didn't have the mm -hmm. baby, so you don't get those benefits, mm -hmm. even though right, but you still need health care afterwards. You, for that woman who had the miscarriage, it still was a very real experience where there are yep. real consequences. Um, so you would need that assistance. It's pretty, pretty messed up how it's currently set up. So that's something that I would I think that's something that everyone can get behind, you know, because these, these aren't like just, you know, women have an abortion. This isn't that. These are like women who legitimately had a kid who have a legitimate, you know, financial need for help. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. And I mean, just like as a woman, like after something like that happens, like you still need to be able to see your doctor, like you still have, yeah. you know, like checkups that you need to go into, you know, like for your, for your own safety and, and health. Like it doesn't make sense that yeah. they aren't eligible. the trauma involved in a miscarriage. Like you thought you were going to have this little bundle of joy and yeah, I no, mean, it's definitely easily, like, the worst experience that, like, many women have, like, experienced mm -hmm. in their entire lives. Yeah. So, yeah, the the less that we can have the state produce more, you know, trauma and more problems for those people, the better, as far as I'm concerned. Um, I agree. Okay, we got another one. This is uh, workers' rights, and especially service industry workers' rights is something that's very important to me as someone who spent years, uh, over 15 years in the service industry. House hey. Bill uh, 344. Uh, is introduced by Terry, Representative Terry Canales, uh, is trying to advocate for employers would be prevented from collecting or receiving any portion of gratuity paid to or left for a tipped employee. It would make the gratuity left the property of the employee that was tipped, not the business owner, which is the way it's currently set up. And, I, and I, I'm not, a, I remember there being legislation that was recently passed within the past few years that essentially gave that to the employers to disperse back to their employees and, and it was framed in, in a way that it was like no this is actually going to help people from being taken advantage of by their employers by making them have to spread you know the tip sharing but what it essentially was doing was just letting owners just take their employees tips without having any obligation to pay them back and so this would kind of flip that back around again to where no that money belongs to whoever they gave that money to um mm -hmm. so that's another yeah. thing to keep an eye that on that was like such a big deal when that law was passed and <laughs> everybody was so mad i think i was still waiting tables at that time that was like a few a few years ago yeah um yeah 
Uh, we've got Crazy. in regards to LGBTQIA rights, uh, we've got House Bill 560, also filed by Representative Cecilia uh, Celia Israel. Uh, and this bill would protect young LGBTQIA Texans from harmful so-called conversion therapy practices. And the bill would prevent mental health care providers from trying to change a child's sexual orientation. Uh, and then Senate Bill 121, fired by Senator Nathan Johnson, would eliminate gender-specific terminology in statuses related to the rights and duties of spouses and parents. Uh, and this bill would help ensure same-sex marriages and parental relationships would be included in family code provisions because they currently are not. That's actually a really big, big, big deal for another reason because you know, in this mo mostly male-dominated world, there is one aspect where to a degree, men are underrepresented, and that's in family law. You know, we, we wrote everything really with the intention of mm -hmm. taking care of the moms in the situation, so everything's usually in her favor. Mm -hmm. So you have a lot of, you know, single dads who are either getting, you know, having to pay too much child support that they can't afford, or they're uh, they're not getting custody of their children, and it's, it's ruining lives, and a lot of, you know, it actually contributes to the male suicide rate. I think what that provision will also do, if I'm hearing this correctly, um, it could add, add some equality for them on that front too. And mm -hmm. that's something we've been working for for a long time because, you know, the the dads have rights to the kids too. It's not just, this isn't like a thing where, you know, only one of the one of the genders should have this. I don't think that should ever sure. be the case. It shouldn't be gender-based. And yeah, at least the way no. I understand it, this kind of takes away that, that focus on this gender or that gender and kind of disgenders mm. it, which, yeah, that would be the way to go about it because we're all human beings and regardless of, you know, and we all choose to identify in different right. ways. We, we have different experiences. So those laws that, that are written for these types of things shouldn't be specific to a certain group of people because they're not going to encompass everybody. Mm -hmm. And the whole point of these laws is for, for all of us. Um, House Bill 25 and Senate Bill 208 are bills that are backed by multiple Republican representatives uh, and okay, am I in the bad now? Yeah, I'm in the bad section. Sorry. Okay, so this is these are two bills that would prohibit distribution of an application form for an early ballot, early voting ballot, and it would prevent officials from giving mail-in ballot applications if voters didn't submit a request. So it's kind of more voter suppression, making it yeah. more difficult for people to acquire either mail-in ballots or early voting. Um, it's just kind of more of the same. This is this is this has been how, how how the Republicans in this state have handled these types of issues for for a long time now. So, and one one thing that I was not, and I didn't read every bill on the good. I kind of picked and choose what I thought was worth talking. I didn't want to make this section of the podcast too long. But one thing that I did notice right. about this article is that there are a lot more good than bad and ugly. There's only a few kind of in the bad and the ugly section, which was which was heartening. Mm -hmm. um, House uh, another quote unquote bad uh, bill is House Bill three eleven. Uh, Representative Drew Springer's bill sets guidelines for the removal, relocation, alteration, or construction of historical monuments and sets civil pen penalties for violations. It seeks to have these changes approved only by the legislature, even for alterations of historical accuracy. Uh, this bill is likely a result of the debate over Confederate monuments in our state, and the goal of the bill is to make it harder to have them removed. So we removed a, a Confederate monument over the summer here in Texas, in, in Fort Worth, forgive me. And uh, this bill would essentially make it to where Fort Worthians didn't have that decision. It would be Austin that makes that decision for us, which- That's it, really weird. Mm -hmm. So like, even if the city 
like today decided to like erect an, a monument um and then like two months from now like wanted to remove it they would have to get permission from austin before they could remove uh, a monument that they themselves like just put up correct that this is something that i've been noticing like and again it's like it's this you know small government mentality but then being a hypocrite about that like abbott has been doing this multiple times yeah. where he's been trying to take power away from the cities or the municipalities and put that power in the hands of either the governor or the texas legislature in austin and that is the opposite of small government if you believe in small government you believe in decentralization you believe in letting the people in their communities make those decisions for themselves that's what you hear about states rights all the time it's like washington shouldn't have the right to tell us that it should be the state of texas that decides that well, this is just an extension of that. Austin shouldn't tell us that. It should be Fort Worth that decides that for itself. However, well, and it's not Austin. It's the officials that are residing there because I think Austin it gets like the most, like the most brunt of this, like from Abbott sure, and. Sure. Well, um, I say Austin in, this, Dan Patrick, in the yeah. same way that we refer to DC as, right, right, as right, the, yeah. the seat of, of where all of this is happening. And so, you know, that's the location of where these decisions are being made. Um, yeah. But, but you're right. You're right. Uh, and then there's just two ugly bills that I want to touch on before I wrap up. Uh, House Bill 69 uh, would effectively ban abortions at 12 weeks of pregnancy, revising the current state law, which prohibits abortions after 20 weeks. Uh, they do this every session. And so I yeah. imagine this is going to get mm -hmm. a lot of attention from the media. It usually does. It usually stirs up a big thing. It's I don't know. Who knows if it's actually going to pass or not? Probably not, if I had to guess. But we obviously need to keep an eye on it. Um, and then House Bill 229, 330, and 335 are all bills that were filed by Representative Briscoe Kane under the guise of preventing non-existent voter fraud. They include creating criminal offenses, increasing criminal offenses, and creating a database of non-citizens in Texas. Yet there has been no... <laughs> I know. There has been no evidence of widespread voter fraud in Texas or any evidence to suggest that non-citizens have been voting in elections. Just to be clear to all our listeners, there is no evidence that either of these things are happening to the extent where you would need to create a law that's going to affect all of us. Um, it is clear to, and this is the wording from Progress Texas, it is clear to us that these bills are the latest in a series of Texas conservatives' attempts to spread misinformation and disenfranchise voters. Texas I know, is, and it's just yeah. going to end up biting the conservatives in the ass because, like, they're the, I mean, the evidence of voter fraud this last election was, like, primarily, like, Republicans doing voter fraud, yeah. and so it doesn't even make sense. Yeah. Well, they weren't doing voter fraud so much as they were doing voter suppression. This, well, this voter suppression, but, like, there were people that yeah, were Republicans yeah. that, like, literally tried to, like, vote for their mom, who's... Mm -hmm. Vote twice. And Trump was actually yeah. telling like, people, yeah. like... like in order to vote for trump like yeah yeah trump was literally telling people to vote by mail and vote in person to test the system yeah but this pisses me off for a specific reason um there is a woman named crystal mason she got out of prison and was on supervised release okay um she did not know that under supervised release she could not vote so she went to go vote she found out she wasn't on the poll she casted a provisional ballot which is basically like you cast the ballot and then you give your id your id later and everything if it's not uh eligible or something that's not on the up and up they toss your vote out okay mm -hmm. um six months later she gets arrested and sentenced to five years in prison for just trying to vote 
for trying to vote because she didn't know what her rights were like after yeah. getting out of they had a three insane. person yeah they had a three person all republican i'm, I'm guessing uh review panel saying that it should stand even though her own parole officer uh, said under oath that he did not tell her she couldn't vote he's like it's not something we tell them when they get out of prison most felons when they get out of prison don't know what the voter laws are i know ex-felons who don't think they can vote who can and i've yeah, met people same. who you know think they can vote when they can't um i don't think there's enough education for that so the fact that we're ramping up you know punishments mm -hmm. it's cruel it's just more they they know what they're doing this is more of an mm -hmm. attempt to be as a to be a deterrent to keep people from voting who would likely vote and who would likely vote democrat okay they're trying to keep their power because they know they don't have the numbers True. this is yeah this is probably the the biggest problem i have with the republican party right now is their voter suppression. I mean, they, they scourged about 198,000, over 198,000 uh, eligible voters in Georgia mm -hmm. saying they had moved when they hadn't. I mean, this is this is just rampant, and Texas is no yeah. exception. Texas is actually, the rules. I understand, a little bit worse. Yeah. Oh, we're the worst I've state as far as voter suppression goes. Like, we're, we're the hardest state to vote in. There's, we have the most mm -hmm. hoops to jump through compared to the other 49. Um, so, okay, so that's, that's the Texas legislative... <laughs> agenda perhaps you know for the next few months and again i'll, I'll do my best to kind of keep everyone abreast of of the what's what is getting passed what's not what those debates look like and stuff obviously the texas tribune covers this this is their job so if you you know you you can use them as a resource they've got a podcast where they talk about this stuff regularly um we're going to try and stay more local as, as our own podcast but however it, these local things that happen to us at the local level are often decided at the state level so uh we're going to cover that stuff as well but Amber, do you want to get us into these police chief candidates from the meeting this past Thursday? Yes. Um, so for those of you who uh, were unaware, there was a meeting held. Um, well, we, we'll just start from the beginning. Um, so Chief Krause uh, has, uh, I think, back in like July, maybe August, um, sometime within the last you know few months, um, Chief Krause of Fort Worth PD announced that he was retiring. And so since then, the city has uh, taken part in a, or embarked on a, rather, on a nationwide search um, to find our new police chief candidate, um, or who our new chief of police will be. And they've um, identified six different candidates. And um, two of those are, are members of Fort Worth PD already. And then the other, individuals um are from other are from other um departments hold on one so, moment um and so they've identified six different candidates and um as they had uh as they were you know starting the process they decided to um include the public and so this last week they held a um a panel discussion with the six candidates and they took a bunch of questions from um, from the citizens in Fort Worth. Um, and um, then they, what ended up happening, I guess, because they received so many, um, so many uh, questions, they kind of like categorized the, the, all of the input that they had received into like six main areas of discussion. Um, I submitted um, my own questions, none of which were asked. Um, my questions were a little bit more critical as we've had a lot of problems with Fort Worth PD. Um, 
And a lot of the questions that they asked tended to be, um, I guess, what they said was more reflective of the general questions that they received. So in my opinion, some of the questions were kind of softball um, and weren't things that, you know, like I, I found to be particularly pertinent, but apparently other people found them to be really important. So a lot of the discussion that was had uh, was really kind of focused around um, questions related to procedural justice and community policing. And, um, you know, during that, the panel discussion, they never really um, gave like clear definitions for procedural justice. And um, I know I've kind of discussed it a little bit on the podcast before, but even I myself have, have not given uh, our listeners a exact definition. So I wanted to, before getting into the discussion, to kind of um, identify some of some of the ideas that were the topics um, of what was said. So um, to get, bring you this information, I went back to my um, my criminal justice uh, um, one of my textbooks from from my degree because I do have a master's in criminology and criminal justice, and I took a class uh, that was required for my program called um, called ethics in criminal justice. So I have the textbook here for my class. Um, the, that was actually written by Jocelyn M. Pollock, who is a um, criminal justice professor that is based actually here in Texas. She's wonderful and I really admire her. Um, and this is by far like one of my favorite books for my, for my grad program. Um, and it's called Ethical Dilemmas and Decisions in Criminal Justice. So here, um, the idea of procedural justice kind of comes from um, just a, a general over a, a general overview of what justice really means. So there are different types of justice. For example, one of the types of justice oh, some of you guys may already be familiar with is the idea of retributive justice, um, which is defined as the component of justice that concerns the determination in methods of punishment. Um, this can also be kind of looked at as um, revenge, right? So someone has wronged another individual and um, they're the, the only way to achieve justice in this idea is to in, in act in revenge, um, kind of like an, an eye for an eye, um, which is, you know, was for, you know, I guess like really like centuries um the way that humans did justice uh you know like in in earlier earlier times um punishment times as some people might say um what's that anthony punishment punishment yeah it's really just about it's really about revenge so like justice is only served if like through the means of revenge and if the person who was wronged isn't getting revenge and doesn't feel like they were um you know like like they were made whole through that revenge, then justice wasn't served. Um, this isn't how we do things now, um, for largely. Uh, a I mean, lot of people on, on who you ask. A lot of people think this is what the criminal justice system is supposed to do, though. Right, it's punitive, and, and yeah, and yeah, in in many ways. Um, however, it, it it doesn't do anything to really like stop crime, um, and it doesn't do anything to like benefit our society. It just really makes individuals feel better. Um, but, or supposedly, you know, a lot of people who, um, you know, maybe have had a family member be, be murdered and, you know, watched the, the, um, the murderer, you know, be executed, like have come out and said, like, that didn't, that didn't make me feel any better, you know? Um, and so, and so it just kind of, it depends. It's like part of like this larger conversation about like, what is justice? What do we want the, the purpose of our criminal justice system to be and how do um, how do we want to to act on it? 
Okay, so um, what so, is you know what is procedural mm-hmm. justice? So procedural justice <clears throat> is defined as the component of justice that concerns the steps taken to reach a determination of guilt, punishment, or other conclusion of law. So procedural justice is in many ways what it sounds like, um, you know, concerned with were the right actions taken up to the point of determining whether a person was guilty or innocent. Um, so like due process of law, for instance, um, everyone has a right to a, a fair trial. And if you take the correct actions on the front end in determining one's guilt or innocence, then justice must have been served. Um, is how I've always kind of thought of it. Okay. Um, <clears throat> however, when it comes to policing, <laughs> um, it, it has a little bit of a more, a more narrow meaning. <clears throat> and so um, when it comes to, to, like there's two main components of, um, of procedural justice, which is, um, you know, like the voice of the individual, uh, a voice which refers to an individual's ability to have a say in the proceeding and then control, like which is the ability of power or power to have some influence over the outcome. And so when it comes to policing, um, I think in 2015, President Barack Obama um, had put together a task force to um, to come up with guidelines for what they call, um, the, it, what ended up being titled like the president's um, the president's task force on 21st century policing and um and what can can be done to ultimately like make policing more fair um because it's been known for a long time that there's a lot of issues with policing the role in of police in our society has changed over time um so for instance you know like historically you know there were times where police were can were more concerned with um you know being civil servants and they acted much in the way uh, that social workers, you know, do now. Um, And then over time, it became, you know, like, their main job was like to fight crime, you know. Um, And so So a lot of the original roles was kind were kind of removed. Can we think Um, of like Andy mm -hmm. Griffith versus, I don't know, today? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, (laughs) that's a good analogy. Yeah. Andy Griffith, who is a member of the community that he serves, um, is friends with everybody in the neighborhood, uh, trying to keep people safe. You know, like you see a kid skipping school, you like take them home, you know, to to their parents who, you know, you're friends with, have a good talking with them. You know, you don't you don't arrest the kid for truancy um, like you would see now sometimes. Um, Yeah. And so like that, that is what I think a lot of people still think of when they think of police. However, you know, due to the war on drugs and um, reinterpretation of the Fourth Amendment, um, which uh, I I think it's the Fourth Amendment that, um, you know, talks about, um, I guess, the uh, the procedures of like illegal search and seizure or whatever you know like protecting one's own property from search by police like after they kind of after that was reinterpreted um due to the war on drugs and police were able to just start you know do uh you know stop and frisk and search anybody they just wanted to search um it really kind of changed um the role that police took and initially a lot of law enforcement officers were really resistant to that um however over time, you know, and the militarization of police and, you know, turning on, turning into this like more crime fighter role, um, it took away a lot of what 
made the police seem like us, you know, like mm-hmm. part of the community. And now they're kind of seen as separate. Um, <clears throat> however, so uh, bringing it kind of back in. So back when um, another, when it comes to procedural justice, it is, you know, police taking the, uh, being, you know, professional in their role, um, addressing community members, not with profanity, but, you know, like with respect, um, you know, following the actual guidelines um, and the procedures that are in protocols that are put in place, you know, um, for making certain types of stops, um, you know, not infringing on people's rights, which, you know, is illegal anyways. Um, however, you know, law enforcement in, in the past in some areas, you know, do sometimes get away with that. Um, and so it's really just about um, you know, following the rules and applying the and applying the rules the same to everyone, you know, so not treating one community um, one way and, you know, a different community a different way and, so, and not treating like, you know, white individuals, you know, for example, um, differently than you would treat um, Latinx or or black individuals. So, and so. Go ahead. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Oh, and so it's just it's just applying the rules evenly across the board. And, um, you know, it's like the model to me, like a one way to look at it is like customer service, you know, like, like any type of customer service job that you have, you know, like where you're, you know, like the way that you would engage with your clients. It's just like basically getting uh, law enforcement to, um, to kind of treat the public in that way. And so um, by doing so is is causing justice is that kind of what i'm trying to i feel like it's coded language and i want to know what the code is like what do they really mean when they say procedural justice um what they really mean when they say procedural justice um it it presumes that the the laws and regulations that are already existing in our criminal justice system in the in the in the protocols are are already applied to everyone equally and therefore if um if you are treating everyone in the community exactly the same then the procedures that are put forth will bring a person to justice when justice should be served so it's really predicated on the idea that our criminal justice system is is already fair when um it's not when it's not, but if if you are follow, it's predicated on the fact that if you follow the rules, then then justice will will be served because the rules are are already in place that and they're already working, right? It's just the fact that people aren't following the rules, which is why we have all these like racial disparities or um, socioeconomic disparities, like within um, you know who is punished and who isn't, um, and so that is one of the biggest criticisms is that. Um, the rules, in fact, are not the same for everyone. Um, and there's, you know, a lot, quite a bit of evidence to, to suggest that. Um, just simply looking at looking at capital punishment, for instance, you know, capital punishment is intended. It's not maybe I wouldn't say intended. That sounds kind of inflammatory, um, but it's used for certain groups of people, you know, not everyone. Yeah. And so um, and so it assumes that our systems already really fair. And that part of the problem is that the procedures aren't being followed properly. So um, that is that is one of the criticisms that you see from it a lot. Um, and and I I'm in that same camp personally. However, um, it's better than what we've seen prior 
<laughs> you know, um, it's better than tough on crime policies and it's better than we're on drug era policing. If you, you know, I say that as if it was in the past, but I mean, I think here in Texas, the war on drugs is alive and well. Um, you know, maybe in like Oregon, it's over. <laughs> um, but for us here in Texas, it's not. Um, and so it, um, and so it really is, uh, it's, it's, and the, it's the idea that if police are nicer to people and if they don't act in ways that are explicitly racist and if they follow the rules regarding de-escalation, um, then, then you know, policing will become fair and just. Okay. So and can we tie so, this to, mm-hmm. to the candidates now? So who... Of- well, so I, before, so I have one more part. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about community policing because community policing is one of the ways that um, you know, it's like it's part of it, it's kind of like tied into procedural justice. And so um, when, when they say community policing, um, this is a model of law enforcement that creates partnerships with the community and addresses underlying problems rather than simply enforcing the law. So like like one of um, one of the uh, recommendations by uh, the president's task force on 21st century policing was to re-implement community policing, which is kind of getting police officers like back into that mind of um, public servant. And um, one of the examples that they discuss in uh, that the candidates discuss a lot is um, Fort Worth's uh, neighborhood police officer program, where like each neighborhood has a go-to law enforcement member who's there. Um, and their role is to keep, you know, um, the community safe. If people have questions, they can contact this person. If they see a suspicious person walking down the street, they can contact their neighborhood police officer. Um, if they think they saw a crime, they can like report it to their neighborhood police officer. So like, that's kind of an example of, in like getting the police to be part of the communities that they serve. Um, so another thing with procedural justice is that it, it's focused on, um, you know, legitimizing the criminal justice system. And, and when it comes to procedural justice policing, it's focused on um, legitimizing law enforcement agents in the eyes of the community. Because if people feel that justice is not being served equally, or um, if policing is not being distributed across the communities in a fair manner, it delegitimizes law enforcement and our criminal justice system as a whole. So it's like really just about getting people to like see law enforcement agents as um, being legitimate and fair arbiters of justice. So just wanted to to add that in there. Um, So getting into the candidates um, that in the panel discussion that was held, um, I'll just kind of give the the name of the candidate. So we'll start with talking about Wendy Bainbridge. Um, on the Fort Worth uh, city website, there is like a small, um, there's like a small bio of like each of the candidates. And so um, I'll just kind of say like where she's from. She's uh, been the assistant chief of Houston Police Department since uh, 2017. Um, and she's been with uh, Houston PD um, as a law enforcement officer since 1992. Uh, she's got a master's of arts degree and sociology from University of Houston, and then also a bachelor's of of business administration from the University of Houston. Um, So she uh, is one of two female candidates. And um, one of the things that 
that I immediately noticed about her is that she um, has has a it seems to me like very like policy oriented. Um, and most of the questions that were asked, like she was able to give a lot of like examples about things that, you know, they've implemented in her own department. Um, and she seems to like kind of be focused on um, on just like, you know, different programs that that they've done and, you know, how they were successful and how they weren't. And um just like different policies that she has seen, you know, to be um, effective. Um, she seemed very data driven. Um, and uh, she, let me look at my notes here. She reminded me um, of like a, a high school principal or elementary school principal or something like. Yeah, she had like, uh, she definitely had like upper management, like written all over her, in my opinion. Um, and she like referred several times to kind of like a holistic approach. Um seemed uh she seemed very much like about about transparency but i didn't find her to be like particularly like progressive like she seemed kind of like more more neutral um in terms of of policies and wasn't really like leading with like with like a progressive um agenda or anything like that and i'm trying to remember like some of the questions that they that they asked directly like some of the questions were um, I think the first question was like about how would you lower uh, lower like homicide rates like here in in Fort Worth um, because homicide rates have been like this last year have you know skyrocketed in all major cities uh, much of that's like due to how crazy this last year has been yeah, especially economically um, so people are struggling because we're in a depression recession yeah and and really just like for mental health across the board you yeah, know what I absolutely. mean like there's like the like, you know, like more people that are like in poverty that weren't in poverty at the beginning of last year, you know, um, there's more, you know, people are like losing their homes, like um, people are losing their relatives, people are, you know, a lot of people are just kind of losing everything, like unemployment rates are up, you know, I mean, this last year has like really been like a recipe for, you know, like stress and, um, it, and a recipe for crime, you know what I mean? So it's not really surprising that that homicide rates are up. Um, she like addressed issues with domestic violence and she kind of talked about like the different types of crimes that like could be prevented like by police, um, such as domestic violence and how like upping like supportive services for women in those situations would be really helpful. Um, and then, you know, she also kind of addressed like crimes that like that police are not able to to always prevent, like, um, you know, like random homicides and um you know, robberies and stuff like that, like, and that in those ways, like, um, you know, like, some law enforcement feel like it, it's more like a reactive response, you know, rather than like, what could I have done on the front end, like as a law enforcement officer themselves, you know, like, like structurally, um, you know, we can prevent those types of crimes by offering like more supportive services to people um, and trying to keep people out of poverty, um, help, you know, more like employment solutions, you know, for our community and stuff like that. Um, but you, you can't expect like, uh, a law enforcement officer, like alone to like make those things happen. Um, and so, um, other than that, like, I don't really have, have too much to say about her. Um, I would be, if she were, she wasn't my initial pick, um, if she were to be selected, I personally, like, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't be disappointed. Um, but she just kind of came can off. You, as, uh, um, I'm putting you on the spot here. We didn't talk about this earlier, but if you had to give her like a letter grade, what would you give her? Oh, letter grade. Oh, geez. Um, I would give her, um, I'd give her a B 
or maybe a B plus. Okay. Yeah, maybe I'd probably plus. give her. I'd probably give her a B, B, maybe a B minus based on what yeah. I watched. I'm not. I obviously not not the expert on that like like you are, but just based on like watching her, watching what she said, based on how she interacted as a human being, it's kind of like all right. Seems like she would be an improvement, but was not my favorite candidate. He kind of reminded me of uh, Captain Janeway from Star Trek Voyager. Um, and maybe that's why I'm giving her the plus, because like Captain Janeway is my favorite of the captains. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like I don't know. She just kind of had like this Janeway vibe, you know, like really, like really intelligent, you know, kind of no nonsense. Um, and, you know, like very, very data driven. You know, I, I didn't, you know, like she wasn't like the most personable candidate, um, but she seemed like, you know, like very serious. Um, and knowledgeable about, you know, the different the different things that she's seen, you know, work for Houston PD. Okay, um, so who's next? But okay, next is uh is Troy Gay. He um has been with Austin, Austin PD since 1991 and um has served as a, assistant chief at Austin Police Department since January 2013. Um he's got a bachelor's degree from Texas State University. Yeah. Um, and performed graduate work in criminal justice at the University of Virginia. And he also uh, graduated from the FBI National Academy. Um, so um, Chief, Chief, uh, Assistant Chief Gay, I thought he was really, I thought he was like, came off as a very nice guy. Um, and uh, was just like, definitely like, the most like, relaxed and, um, like comfortable of of all of the candidates he came um, across he, like, to me like you a, know sorry go ahead i was gonna say like at the end you know he was like making making jokes you know like um and you know he seemed i don't know he just all like just like as a person alone like he seemed like like oh that guy seems really cool he and reminded like, me oh, of like guy, a, you know like a salesman not a used car salesman like he wasn't sleazy but like yeah, like you said, very comfortable, like making little jokes. You reminded me of like an appliance salesman or something, like trying to make me really comfortable with spending five grand on this refrigerator or something. Like, I don't know. He came off as genuine. I didn't think he came off as, like to me, like I didn't think he came off as a salesman. Maybe in the way that like salesmen are like, you know, have to be like really personable in their job. But like he seemed to me like, um, like his ideas and answers were like, were, were like, genuine instead yeah. of just like you know making things up well whatever. coming from austin too like just the way that they do things on in austin is a lot more progressive than than fort worth true true um we definitely cannot argue with that um but oh yeah there austin is just like constantly pissing off the governor um but he actually so another thing about him is that he has 34 years of law enforcement experience and he actually started out in waco um on waco pd which i thought was cool um because like you know waco is i don't know it's like a small town like i know i kind of like waco um but i thought i thought you know i i thought that was like oh so you know kind of like uh you know you mentioned earlier like andy griffith like you know like a small town small town cop goes big city kind of thing one thing um, that I like that he said, they that one of the questions that they kind of asked him towards the end was about uh, be, what what their opinion on, on police oversight was, and mm. and he was like, well, I've dealt with police oversight for the past twenty years in my career. He wasn't the only one who said that too, uh, and so he was very much in support of having a police monitor, but in addition, having civilian oversight, 
Uh, and I like that yeah. about him. That fact that he was like, well, we've been doing this for a long time, which kind of was infuriating as a Fort Worthian. Like, why haven't we had it for, if you've had it for 20 years, why yeah. don't we have it? But, uh, but some of the candidates were not for it. So maybe we'll get to those later. Yeah, we'll get to, to those candidates. Yeah, he, he was all about it. Um, and like, yeah, like he said, like um, Austin PD um, implemented a community oversight bo- site board in uh, 2001. Um, so they like have literally been doing it for 20 years. Um, but he, he also, um, you know, was like about like a like evidence based policing um, and intelligence based policing. Oh, that's like what I didn't say about Winnie Bainbridge is that like she kept talking about like police intel. You know, like we have to like use our intelligence and like what what intelligence means in in a law enforcement um capacity is different from t- intelligence and you know like as we would use it like as regular people but um they're talking about like collecting intelligence information like in the same way that like the cia is like an intelligence agency yeah. um and you know because of like big data policing um you know law enforcement are able to to collect bits of data from you know all of the civilians you know regarding like social media accounts and um you know, like, um, like the CC, like the, like the CCTV cameras that are around, you know, stop six, um, would be an example of like collecting intelligence on, on individuals, um, and then kind of using that as a way to prevent crimes in the future. Um, and so I thought that was one one thing I didn't like about Wendy is that like, she brought it up like a hundred times and like, I have a lot of my, a lot of my own, reservations about big data policing and how it infringes on our civil rights as um, citizens. And so I'm not a huge fan of that. Um, Troy Gay also said that he um, is for intelligence-based policing. Uh, For me, the jury's still out on that. Um, But he was about um, procedural justice and community um, collaboration. And he said that, you know, like in the like we discussed a few minutes ago, that police should be part of the community that they serve. Um, he said that um, as far as like the police culture goes, um, that department that the department should always be wanting to improve and be progressive, and that police police oversight is you know a hallmark. Uh, police oversight and accountability is like really the hallmark of any progressive police force. Um, and he also, um, you know, acknowledged that, like, in the beginning, you know, there was a point where he wasn't really in favor of the community oversight. Um, but now, you know, that he's been doing it, you know, been part of an, a department that, that you know, has a program like that, that, um, you know, that it, he's, like, totally for it. And um, it's important, you know, to, um, to, to be able to determine, like, when use of force is actually legal and when it's not. Um, and, you know, he said when it comes to use of force specifically, that just because like, um, you know, and we kind of talked about this, like when when I talked about the um, expert panel here in Fort Worth on, on you know, use of force here in, in um, our department, that, you know, you can have a person be shot by police and maybe technically it was legal, but it doesn't mean that it was the best um you know, mode of action or that it even like had to end in somebody getting shot. Um, and so he said that, you know, you need to be evaluating like when use of force is legal, but not necessary. Um, and so I really like that. Um, he's talked about diversity, equity and inclusion um, and how it's important for law enforcement to create spaces where 
there can be dialogue with communities of color um and that it's incumbent on the department to create those spaces which i was like thought thought was like pretty based um and then he also said that um one of the things that like they because they, they were asked about recruiting um recruiting law enforcement officers that are you know um by poc um from by poc communities and um he said that uh, one of the things that like they did in their department was like recognizing how like some of the hiring policies that were like really outdated were disenfranchising um, members uh, that were that were black or Latinx. Um, and one of the things that like he actually like admitted was a problem in their department was like getting a lot of traffic tickets because apparently um, if you have a certain number of light traffic moving tra moving violations, um, you don't qualify to become a law enforcement officer. And because like we know that there's been so much bias in policing in the past, even in Austin, um, that it wasn't really fair to like be disqualifying um, you know, members of their black community who wanted to become law enforcement officers, like because they had like an unnecessary or like, you know, like were over the limit of like moving violations when they were actually like probably being targeted, um, you know, like sure. by officers. And so he like actually was like, yeah, like that's one of the things that like we had going on where we were disenfranchising like potential candidates for for reasons that were like, you know, disenfranchising them that were like our fault to begin with. Um and so they actually like did away with that with that policy so that they were able to have more candidates from um, diverse communities on their first, which I thought was really cool. And and, you know, like a lot of a lot of like officers, like I think wouldn't even be able to admit that, you know. Um, and so I, I liked that, you know, he was like being transparent about that. Yeah. Can we talk about Derek Miller next? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we can talk about Derek Miller next. Um, so Derek Miller, although I don't want to skip Christopher Jones because I liked him as well. Um, but Derek Miller, um, I, I will give uh, Troy Gay. I will give him. Um, I, I I would give him like an A, an A rating. Um, let's see. But Derek Miller, I would give A plus. Um, so Miller has 28 years of service with the Carrollton Police Department. So he's from the DFW Metroplex. Um, and he served as their, their chief of police uh, since 2017. Um, he has a Master of Arts in Criminology and Criminal Justice from the uh, UTA and a Graduate Certificate in Criminal Justice Education from the University of Virginia. Um, and he is actually originally from Fort Worth, which I didn't know until, um, until the panel that was held on Thursday, but he uh, grew up on the west side of Fort Worth. So he's actually from our city. Um, <clears throat> and um, he is, was all about um, like building relationships with police. And I liked pretty much like every single answer that he gave. I yeah, can't I say really that there him. was like an answer that I was like, I don't agree with that. Um, he, I agreed with pretty much everything that he had to say. And like what I liked them, like, like what we got off on the right foot <laughs> because when they were asking about like how to deal with like rising crime rates like here in Fort Worth like he was like well there's a lot of different reasons you know like why the crime rates are rising you know part of that's because of the pandemic and he was the only person that was like yes the pandemic from this last year has is the exact cause of why crime rate is rising everywhere um nobody else even like mentioned the pandemic and I was just like okay so like we're talking about like reality so it's good yeah um but he also like immediately went to like issues with like the you know defunding education 
and um, issues with unemployment rates and issues with poverty, you know, that, um, you know, cause um, certain, you know, certain areas to have more crime rates than than others. And he was like, if we're wanting to talk about lowering crime rates, like we need to be like, you know, making sure that like we're funding these other areas of um, our communities. Absolutely. Um, when yeah. I, yeah. And I was like, all right, like, yes, exactly. Like, those are all the things that like, I believe too. And law enforcement knows, you know, mm-hmm. but a lot of, you know, law enforcement agents are like, well, it's not really my place to like talk about education because I'm not an educator, you know? Um, but, but it's all connected. But yeah, all of our systems like, are connected. And yeah, he seemed it, yes. real. Like he seemed like a real person. <laughs> and he seemed yeah. to like really get the issues that were at hand and was like willing to deal with them in an honest sort of way. He, to me, seemed like of all the six of them up there, the one who like was a leader and like understood mm-hmm. the role of leadership. And he brought that yeah. up multiple times. It's like, look, it's my job if I am chief of police to model these correct behaviors, to say the right things, to do these right actions. Therefore, the rank and file officers see me do these things and they take that cue from me as a leader and then buy into those things themselves. And like nobody yeah. else, nobody else talked about stuff like that. No one else really didn't seem to be aware of stuff like that. A lot of the people, in my opinion, seem to be just kind of giving the generic sort of answers to the, you know, honestly, the generic questions that they really threw at them. But but Derek Miller was like the one person up there that over and over again, I was like, yeah, dude, like you, you get it, man. Yeah. I Quick question. That- is he the only, is he the only one on there that's been an actual police chief? I know there was an assistant police chief um, or a deputy police chief. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, Interesting. He, yeah. And he's been chief for a while in Carrollton and Carrollton is not that far mm-hmm. either. And so like, and being from Fort Worth and then dealing with, you know, a different, like, I, I don't know if Carrollton wants to be called a mid city, but like there's a bunch of those municipalities that are kind of all on the North side of DFW. Like, and he talked about having to compete with other PDs. Like, look, as, as Carrollton being around, you know, Addison, Dallas, Plano, like Frisco, all of these other Irving, like they are all competing for the same pool of candidates for their officers. And so like he was under understanding of like how we had to separate ourselves as, as a department to make ourselves, you know, like, uh, sellable to these people that we want to hire. And that people were telling him that, like, oh, I applied to Carrollton because of y'all's reputation, because y'all are a good police department, because of X, Y, and Z. And yeah, like, because, mm-hmm. because they, too, have had community oversight since, like, 2001 <laughs> or something like that. Um, they also have, you know, been doing community or, um, like, community oversight for, for a really long time. And one of the things that I really liked that he said is, like, um, I think they were asking about dealing with, like, um, with accountability and you know how um you know how to i guess like how it like i don't remember exactly how they asked the question was it i actually wrote the question because i didn't care for it but it was like how do you oh here it is how do you implement change without decreasing officer morale which was like one of the questions that they asked and i was and to me i'm just like like why is that even a factor because we're talking about people dying and being killed by police Mm -hmm. like murdered and you're worried about like the morale of, of of the people that are you know um they're responsible for that like and just and to me it, it was not a very well thought out question and they had been asking him about that and he took it to like a leadership to, you know how leadership and what the importance of that role is you know um in in dictating these types of change and he said um and he said he was like the last person to answer and everyone else had like kind of you know like I don't want to say like droned on, you know, but gave kind of like wordy answers about 
you know, like why excessive use of force is bad and like how accountability like protects the officers and like blah, blah, blah. And he was like, he was like excessive force and misconduct is not tolerated. It's just not tolerated, like end of answer, <laughs> you know, like, um, and I thought it like came off as like really strong because he's like, I'm not going to make excuses for like why excessive force and misconduct is okay because it's officers like it's not okay you know it's not okay and it delegitimizes police in the eyes of the community and you can't allow it in your department you know um mm -hmm. and i thought that was like that was like really strong and um you know he also talked about how you know like the role of a police monitor and you know accountability and oversight and evaluation it like strengthens the department and like how important it is to have that transparency for community members to like respect law enforcement and how law enforcement like in in response like should be respecting community members um and you know he had like all different kinds of ideas for like collaborating with the community and you know building bridges and stuff like that um you know and like increasing like police trust in law or um community trust in law enforcement which is like one of the biggest problems here in fort worth um and I thought it was, I don't know, I thought he, I thought he was like the strongest candidate yeah. in my opinion. I would be proud to have that dude as my police chief for sure. I would too. I would too. Um, he was, he was my top pick. With, and I, so I give him A++. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to include about, about him? No, I think I said everything I wanted to say. Okay. So the next candidate is uh, Christopher C. Jones. Um, he has a Bachelor's of Arts degree in criminal justice from the University of Nevada, uh, Las Vegas, and graduated from the FBI National Academy. And, um, the, and he's been the assistant sheriff of the Las Vegas Municipal Police Department since February 2020. Um, so he actually just got in to that position, I guess. Um, like this last year. And uh, one of the things that I thought was a really interesting answer that he gave to the first question was like, why did you decide to apply um, for chief uh, police chief in Fort Worth? And he said that it was because um, a lot of cities like after this last year are like not interested in working with, um, with police departments anymore. And that Fort Worth seemed like they were still ready to like, were still willing to like come to the table and sit down with police and like work through issues of policing in the community. Um, hmm. And he's the only person that said that. Um, but he actually is from Texas, uh, grew up in the Panhandle, and I think um, went to Tarleton. Am uh, I talking? Yeah, he went. Yeah. I, I have written down that he went to Tarleton. Um, but. Uh, he has a lot of experience in police reform, um, and he was for evidence-based and intelligence-led policing. Um, and actually, again, like actually acknowledged like a lot of the like actual causes of crime, um, you know, and how it relates to like you know, like the lack of social services um, and that sort of thing. And he said that police should be stewards of their own community. Um, and I, and he was the only person that like kind of, kind of used that, that type of language. Um, but it's like basically saying that like, you know, police should be members of the community, but he like really put an emphasis on um, how police should be serving, serving their communities first. Um, and 
uh, members of the community first, like law 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 enforcement officers second. Um, but he, what I thought was most interesting about him is that he actually is uh, like you know in Las Vegas again. They've been doing community oversight and police accountability um, for like twenty years, and um, you know m- noted how it's a necessary part of any progressive police force. Um, but he actually sits on the use of force board that they have there so like anytime a um a person is shot and there's like a use an excessive use of force allegation he sits on a board with um with three actual like civilian members of the community um that all have like voting power on determining like whether the use of force was um was necessary or not um, and I thought that was really cool, like that he's actually like on a use of force board and obviously like, you know, has um, a lot of uh, a lot of experience with that. Um, and another thing I liked about him just like as a candidate was that he was actually like giving like legitimate like policy ideas. And he kind mm-hmm. of like Winnie Bainbridge, like in many of the questions, like kind of was using some, you know, like police jargon. Um, that like made sense to, to me, um, you know, but I know like wouldn't necessarily like resonate with like, you know, like average citizens um, that don't have as much knowledge on the area. But um, but the stuff that he was saying, like made it clear that he, you know, like really has a lot of experience and like really, you know, knew what he was talking about. Um, and I thought that he kind of came off as, I thought he came off as, as a strong candidate. To me, he he just... Like I learned more about, I think Las Vegas PD and how awesome and progressive it is as a police department. Then and and he seemed good. Like I'm not the you know the as as into the criminal justice terminology and all, all the stuff that you're you're very educated on, Amber. So I was kind of looking at different things, uh, you know, just more personality type stuff. And he just seemed really like soft spoken and kind of meek, like not very assertive. Uh, and that, I don't know, to me, as far as like a, a leader is concerned or, or and, and, you know, valuing leadership, I didn't get that impression from him. He, he didn't seem very like, like a strong leader, kind of the way Derek Miller did. I was like, dude, this dude's awesome. Uh, and Christopher Jones seemed like yeah. a really nice guy. He seemed really, you know, well-informed on what he was talking about, but I didn't get that like, yeah, this dude, you know, vibe from him. It was just kind of like, all right, you know, I was just kind of lukewarm about him personally. Yeah, I mean, there's different styles of leadership. That's, tr- that's um, true, very true. Yeah, and so, I mean, like, not everybody is, you know, like, you know, I, I don't know. Not everybody comes out, you know, just like, um, you know, like, I'm going to yield this power, you know. Um, some, I don't know, he seems more, um, I guess, his his approach, and really, I mean, his demeanor, you know, is, like, very different from Derek Miller and very different from... Trink, uh, gay, but you could say down um, to earth, maybe. Yeah, I would say down to earth. Yeah, like he and he seemed really genuine. And yeah, um, he did. You know, I mean, the last year, you know, has been difficult for law enforcement officers. You know, um, and I think that he seemed like the way that he was kind of talking about, um, you know, like some of the, you know, I guess like some of the, um, like problems with you know, like police relationships, like with it, with community members, like, um, I think he seemed very troubled by it, you know? Yeah. Um, and that was kind of 
the you know like the the vibe that I was getting is that he like really seems like he wants to do something about like repairing the relationship and was taking it really seriously um and that was kind of like the the you know more like like concern I guess like for his profession yeah it's kind of how it came off to me um it was just thinking it kind of you know had like a more serious demeanor i guess so can we for in the for the sake of time because we're going pretty long already can we uh jumble up julie swearingen and neil noakes can we kind of just talk about them together yeah we can um uh so these are the two um individuals that are already members of fort worth pd um neil noakes uh has masters of science degree in criminal justice uh and criminology from oh, oh TCU um, and a bachelor's degree in criminal justice administration from Tarleton. Um, and since 2019, um, he's been the deputy chief of Fort Worth Police Department. Um, and Julie A. Swearingen um, is the assistant chief of the Fort Worth Police Department. Um, she has a bachelor's in science degree from in criminal justice administration from Tarleton as well. Um, and graduated from the FBI National Academy. Um, and so, like, Neil Noakes, um, I, uh, Neil Noakes seemed, oh, man. I didn't like you him. You know, he's, he's from Fort Worth PD, you know, and and I remember him, like, during the protests and stuff like that. Um, and he, you know, kind of at that time was coming off as, like, a really, like, friendly individual but i felt like his tone during the the questions was like you know, like he kind of came out like like it came off as like kind of mad yeah or like you know like um like a hard ass mad mad yeah and that wasn't at all like how how he was like you know like when in the times that i'd seen him you know out and about like prior um but he came out like very serious and like kind of a hard ass and just like this like no nonsense kind of thing like i don't think he smiled like a single time no um and and was just you know like i know what's best for this city yeah he was very <laughs> smug here. <laughs> he was like smug and like almost like demeaning in his language like he was he was just being asked questions by a, by a reporter or whatever but his answers sounded very much like he was talking down to everybody and i yeah it, and I thought that one of the things that he, that like when it came in both of these two individuals, like Julie Swearingen and Neil Noakes, like when asked about like, you know, building bridges with the community, like both of their answers were like to some effect, like, well, the community members just need to learn to understand what we do, you know, like it's like incumbent upon the community to like accept that they're going to police in this type of way and how the processes work. And if, you know they don't understand that then there's it's the fault of the community when it's like you know like they're they're like which has been the attitude of Fort Worth City this whole time is like you know like we know like we're the bosses we know what we should be doing y'all have no idea what you're talking about you know um what do you mean oversight like we already gave you a police monitor so yeah both of them were like we got a monitor and she, you know, she's, she's doing a great job. She seems very committed. She watches what we do. So. Yeah. Neil Noakes was like, was like. The, the police like, monitor in Fort Worth for who, anyone who's listening does not have the typical powers a, a monitor should have. She's basically just one person you can go to complain to so they don't have to hear about it. 
Right, exactly. Yeah, she takes complaints. And I mean, she's doing as much as she can in her position, but like, it's kind of like, um, you know, like they, ha- like she doesn't have the authority that like, that other types of police accountability systems have like in the areas where these other candidates live, you know? Um, And so like Neil Noakes was like, somebody from her office comes and sits in with us and watches everything that we do. And this system is working perfectly fine. Like, I don't think that we should just take some cookie cutter oversight model from some other city and just put it in Fort Worth. Like we know, you know, like our city is different or whatever. And it was just like, bro, like, yeah, like, of course she comes and sits in your office. That's like literally like what oversight is supposed to be, you know, like, but he was just making it sound like the fact that somebody was in there with them was like, was like already so extreme, you know what I mean? And it's like, I don't, it's like, I don't think you like really understand like what we mean when we say we want accountability and oversight, you know? Um, and, and it was just kind of like the, you know, like the community has no idea what they're talking about. Like we know like what needs to be done. And and it was just like very clear that like, if, um you know, like if Neil Noakes were to be selected as chief, like we're just gonna have like a lot of like the same, barriers that we've already had like um and julie swearingen like she wasn't like that in my opinion like she came off like i know something about her like really reminded me of tulsi gabbard um i think it's just her low monotone voice yeah maybe um maybe but also just like the way that like she was talking about things is just like kind of like this like very like i like idealistic you know approach to policing um she talked a lot about um you know like how if officers will you know, just stick to their beat and shake hands with community members every day that all of these problems will will really go away. Like I don't know how many times like she like brought up like, you know, like as a as a means of like problem solving, like officers like doing their beat. And like she wanted to like expand the neighborhood policing program um to like a team of police officers that live in each neighborhood. So it's like more more people in the neighborhood um getting to know the citizens and you know, like everybody will be friends and every and everything is going to be fine. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, like, I didn't, you know, I mean, those are all great ideas, you know, but like, I think our our problems are a little bit deeper deeper than that. Um, and it just seemed like to me, like, you know, hearing these these you know people from these other communities and these other cities that have like been doing accountability and oversight the right way for like two decades, you know, like. Like, I want that for our community. And, you know, they're just kind of like, yeah, oversight. So what big deal? Like, get over it. And it's like these two people from Fort Worth PD are like, oversight? Like, what a huge, inappropriate, crazy idea, you know? Like, as if it was just, you know, the worst thing in the world. And it's like, and it's like, hey, like, 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 we could have the same things that, like, other cities have absolutely it would be really awesome you know yeah they they don't want that for a very serious reason uh they mm -hmm. they know what they're doing is inappropriate in some degrees oh yeah totally and it just it just kind of reminds me of like the old like um i guess like the the saying like that people use to like um you know like rationalize like like the nsa like and google like following everything that everybody does and you know all that sort of thing like you know like when people are like concerned about um you know like technology like encroaching on our space um and our civil limit civil liberties people are like well 
if you're not doing anything wrong, then you don't have anything to worry about, you know? Right. <laughs> and it's like, I wanted to like say that to Fort Worth PD. Like, if you're not doing anything wrong, then there's nothing to worry about worry when about. it comes to civilian oversight. You know what I mean? Like, if Good you point. really are doing procedural justice um, and community policing the right way, then, like, what are you afraid of? You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So, that's a pretty... So, nay, right, Amber, do you want on, on Noakes and, and Swearingen? Like, I personally, for me, I'll speak for myself, like, I, I would be disappointed. Uh, I was very underwhelmed by their responses, and it would just seem like more of the same. And we need changes right now. If we, let's take this yeah. opportunity to get yeah. a new chief and, like, implement some positive changes in this city. Yeah, we just need somebody from the outside, you know what I mean? Yes. And, like, and I, I'm not even going to give either one of them a grade because, like, I... I don't know. I mean, I just think it's like so apparent that like we like you just said, like we need more changes and we need um, somebody who's like open to actually doing 21st century policing yes. um, in the in the captain's chair, you know. Um, and so like, I, I, too, would be like kind of disappointed. And it's not anything like about either of them personally. I mean, they both kind of came off like as defensive, like more so Neil Noakes than Julie Swearingen, um, you know, like when it comes to just like accountability in general. Um, a lot of like blaming the public for the problems with policing. Um, and I don't think that's appropriate. Um, and I also don't think that's like the sign of like a good leadership. Like you don't want a defensive leader. <laughs> you want somebody that's going to yes. like, you know, um, be open, open to change and, um, you know, keeping up with the changing role of police and society. And I think that like all of the other candidates, like to some degree, some more than others, um, you know, like we're at least like, like open-minded to that. And it just made our department look really bad, I think, um, because we are so far behind when it comes to police accountability. Yes. 100%. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Thomas, do you have any, any last words for us about all of this that you just heard, all this information that you've taken in? Uh, I got to say, you know, from hearing this, Derek Miller sounds like the dude to pick. If I had to predict who Fort Worth was going to pick, it'd probably be one of the two people that was already there, unfortunately. I feel the same you really way. Just, so? I really do. I would not be surprised if Neil Noakes is our new chief. I would, I'd be just, so disappointed, but I would be Yeah, surprised. just knowing from what I've seen from their, from how much the Fort Worth Police Officers Association influences things and how, much, how resistant they've been to this um, yeah. from the start, People are going to be like, we love Derek Miller and city council is going to pick someone else and say people really liked him better. And well, that's... So it's actually David Cook that makes the final yeah. decision. City manager, which same, like he's. Yeah, yeah, he's in the same. He's he's in the same boat. Like he does what the city council says. Ultimately, you know, I, I know he's supposed to work in his capacity as a city manager, but. Yeah, him and Betsy I Price mean... are buddy, buddy. They're they represent mm -hmm. the same ideas, the same things. So even though Betsy's going. David, I don't expect him to change his tune now that she's going. Like I, I don't know very much about David Cook, to be honest. Like, yeah, I don't know. So, I mean, I hope that's not the case because it seems like they would have gone through like a ton of trouble <laughs> to like bring in like all these like various candidates from different areas. Um, and so like, but now I they really... can say they did their due diligence. Now they can I say, know. "Oh, this look, is the we, same we... city." that paid $500,000 for uh, an uh, external audit of their, of their police department 
And against a preliminary report that was 30 pages long saying, hey, with a rich confer an agreement with the police union, you need to fix these things, they elected not to. I yeah. think they're doing this as a bare minimum thing just to get people to be silent and they then and then they can continue their little status quo. Yeah, I yeah, agree. That's I hope what not. I think is where they're at. I hope we're wrong. See, I I know Me that too. I, I get that. Like I totally get that. But the thing is, is that like a problematic department causes so many issues for the city right mm -hmm. and so like it goes both ways like like the problems with fort worth pd are are expensive for the city they bring mm -hmm. a lot of like shame and embarrassment to our city um and this is obviously isn't all fort worth officers but like all of these like publicized issues that have been going on for like the last i don't know forever um and in this day and age and in this moment and in history and in criminal justice generally like are it, it it really is a problem you know for all of these individuals and so it could also be that like they're including two people from our actual department to like keep law enforcement appeased mm. you know so that point. they can actually do like what would be best for our city as a whole which is like to bring somebody in from the outside you know what i mean yeah like if if i'm the city manager like that's what i'm doing I don't know David Cook though, um, but I do want to say for our listeners um, and anyone who, uh, Thomas, I don't know if you have submitted anything yet. Um, the city manager's office, David Cook, um, is taking input on feedback from community members um, based on the panel discussion that took place Thursday. I don't know. I don't. I haven't heard a deadline. I don't know when he's actually going to make his decision. Um, but they should be putting this uh, entire meeting not. Um, the entire meeting took place on Thursday up on the city website, um, as well as the city YouTube channel, Fort Worth, um, city of Fort Worth has a YouTube channel. In case you didn't know, you can watch all the city meetings on there, not live, but they go up afterwards. They're um, usually like a week late or something. They're, they're not very good about putting stuff up on time. No, <laughs> but, they, but they go up there. And so they're archived on YouTube. Um, and so you can watch the meeting if you'd like to. Um, and then make a uh, send a recommendation in the email to David Cook's office. I think his email is like uh, David dot Cook um, C-O-O-K-E at uh, Fort Worth, Texas, all spelled out. Uh, is it dot org or is it dot com or dot gov? gov. Dot gov. Yeah. yeah. We'll put it in the show notes, the actual link. So if you do want to send an email and put your recommendation in, we, we recommend that you do. The more input from the community, the better. Yep. So awesome. Well, thank you very much, everybody, for listening and staying with us. And, and if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to us and you can contact us in the doobly-doo below. So have a good day. Thank you, Joe.